We don't just push the victims to forgive. What? From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. In our chronically short attention span age, it's more important than it's ever been to connect with themes and thoughts that take some time and effort to take in and process. And no matter how much technology advances, good old books are still the best way to do that. This week, I wanted to take a look at some exceptional religion themes books that have appeared in this past year. We're not doing some kind of ranking, but highlighting some of the writing that was noteworthy to me and the team here at Interfaith Alliance. Whoa, wait, we ask things of the perpetrator? Wait, the person who did (laughs) arm has to do stuff? A super important theme in this age of conflict and division is right there in the title of Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg's latest book, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. And it speaks volumes that it comes from a Jewish faith leader in an age of growing anti-Semitism. We've seen a lot of conversation in certain Christian spaces around uh, losing America, quote and unquote, that America is turning on Christianity. And I can't quite see it that way as a Muslim. Another timely release was Harun Mogo's Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future. Harun has been on State of Belief a number of times and brings an unflinching honesty to both his observations and his suggestions that is very present in his latest book. It might mean that you are more at risk uh, for harm for yourself, but that's something that you should be willing to do if you truly believe in justice for everyone. And then there's the book that got me thinking about doing this episode in the first place, The Light We Give. How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life from Simranjit Singh. It breaks new ground in religious literature, and like all of the books we'll be talking about on today's show, it's a great gift for this holiday season. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest, award-winning author Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. She's published seven books so far, and the latest, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, came out earlier this year. It leans on Jewish wisdom and encompassing universal values. It's a powerful, super timely, and ultimately practical call to action. Danya, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I do want to start by saying I have followed you uh, very closely on social media. And I, I, I just think it's you are someone who should be lifted up. They're going to lift you up in future. They're going to go back and say, who were religious leaders that made a difference on social media? And I think you are par excellence, someone who has used that platform. Specifically, I, I follow you on Twitter um, to help 
make plain some things that are difficult and to really, you know, do things in a graceful way, a clear way, and coming out of your tradition, like deeply in your tradition. So I applaud you for that because it's not an easy feat. It's something I look at really closely. And I just, I thank you for that. And um, before we get into your book, which actually, as I learned in your book, had an origin story of Twitter, I'm curious how you're feeling, and I'm sorry to spring this on you, how you're feeling about Twitter right now. As someone who thinks deeply, lay some Jewish wisdom on us on what to do about Twitter. You know, I don't know. Let's see if I have any Torah. (laughs) Come on. Come on. (laughs) of Twitter, I you know I feel like I'm I'm standing in the palace watching the colonnades fall around us. Mm. Uh, it is true that Twitter has always been corporate owned. You know, it's always had significant problems in terms of far right influences and disinformation and trolls and not banning Nazis and all of that. And it has been the critical, critical space in the public square for enabling uh, marginalized voices to be heard for the birth of of movements, Arab Spring, Black Lives Matter, Me Too. I I, I mean, we really have to to give Twitter the credit that it is due. And it's very sad to watch it falling apart piece by piece and to watch um, watch you know, darker forces creep in. Yeah. Um, I think the Torah is just to, uh, you know, as as King Solomon said, you know, King Solomon asked for a ring, as the the legend goes, that would make him happy when he's sad and sad when he's happy. And so he got a ring and on the ring it was written, Gamze Ya'avor, right? This too will pass. And so I think we just need to be present in what's happening to stay put. I I personally am staying put for the moment. Uh, I still have the secret hope that the, you know, government or the public library or somebody's going to swoop in and save it. Um, And if this is the end of this, I, I have faith that something new will emerge to be the space for people to communicate across communities, to organize uh, and and build movements. I, I believe that something will come. I do not know what it is. And it's yeah. it's scary because we don't know what that is yet. I'm going to be looking for your wisdom on that as I look for your wisdom on many things. I want to get into your amazing book. It's on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. And as part of that, I want to understand a little bit more about you for people who don't know you. You're, you're a rabbi. Where, where do you come out of? Like where, what's your background and how do you, how did you get to this point where you felt like you had to write this book? Well, <laughs> those are two, you know, my background uh, in terms of my own upbringing, I was not, you know, I was raised in kind of a typical American Jewish household uh, of the kind of suburban semi-affiliated type. You know, we went to synagogue a couple times a year. We had Passover seders. We weren't particularly observant at home. And my own relationship to Judaism was, uh, you know, long and winding and weird and didn't that that story didn't really start until I was in my 20s. 
Um, that is a whole long story. Um, <laughs> that, 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 I wrote a book about that. What was the name of that book in case people want? Uh, Surprised by God. Um, uh-huh. It's a story of how a grumpy punk rock little atheist wound up discovering somewhat out of out of grief in the glitter of late 90s San Francisco um, spiritual practice that changed her life. Amazing. So. Wow. I want to spend some time with that book. First of all, punk rock rabbi is like what I need in my life. And so uh, I'm, I'm very there. That does give me a flavor of like how you're you're coming at the work that you do. And then why this book now? So the book really started out of Me Too uh, five years ago as we as a country and a culture began asking a new set of questions. Uh, There were all of these famous men that had been named as sexual abusers and issued these weak sauce statements, you know, yes, I did it. But the real problem is that my family is sad now, or what are my fans going to think? And, you know, nobody's really mentioning the victims, the impacts and the harm that they caused, right? It's like, oh no, you know, this is so sad for me personally. And this question of like, now what, right? They've issued these statements. They're saying they're going to go away. Maybe they're fired. I don't know. Like now what, what do we, what do we do? And um, particularly if it's not a people are pressing charges, getting into the legal department. And a friend of mine, who's a journalist asked me some questions that I, I responded. And then I sort of threw the, my response also on Twitter taking the Jewish framework for for repentance, which for us is not about feeling bad. It's about a set of actions that one does to take responsibility for one's harm and to center the victim's needs, attend the victim's needs, and clean up your mess, but also do the work of growing and changing so you don't do the thing again. And I was like, well, here's, here's what we would look for if these dudes were were really taking seriously what they did and cleaning up the the work like this is my guess about what we would see in terms of how it would leak out in terms of the public and the impact because they didn't just harm these specific victims it's like their fans and like what does this mean about rape culture and they're all of these eyes on these people and um and the response was shocking people were like Whoa, wait, we ask things of the perpetrator. Wait, the person who did harm has to do stuff. We don't just push the victims to forgive. What? And I started to in these dialogues with people on Twitter, I started to realize that our culture just has this hole mm-hmm. in, this, in this space that we don't know what to ask of perpetrators. We say we want justice. We don't always know what that means and is, often sounds like revenge. And um, mm, mm. we push, we put, put all this emotional labor on victims yeah. without knowing how to care for them. And, uh, you know, uh, Judaism has a whole system. Yeah. Well, so talk a little bit about that. Like, can you, I mean, I love it when, um, I love it when someone like from the 500s or something like that comes in. You know what we need now? We need someone who was living 1500 years ago who actually was thinking about this and actually might have some wisdom to offer. I mean, tell t- talk about like where you went uh, to find this, you know, t- to find some of, of the Jewish wisdom that you ended up uh, offering. 
I love me a dead guy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. If there's one quote from this, uh, if there's one quote we're going to like lift out, Rabbi says she loves a dead guy. Okay. Good. We got that much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. I'm running around reading books. books Um, But, you know, I I discovered feminism and philosophy both in high school. And so (laughs) reading dead guys in library. Wow. Nice. Um, So Maimonides, the... 12th century philosopher. I, I, my my fault. Sorry. R- well, I was no, I was in the wrong century. He's quoting fifth century people. So it's uh, okay, legit, okay, you okay, know. okay, okay. But Maimonides is 12th century. He's a philosopher. He's a Torah scholar. He's um, he's a physician. He's a one of the greats, greats of my of my tradition. And what he did is he took uh, uh, like basically all of the wisdom that was all over the place in different places around our tradition um, up until then. And he reorganized it and he, he made some some personal choices about, you know, what positions we're going to take. And, you know, there's a lot of chutzpah in, involved in his rearranging, but, um, you know, what, what pieces of what things. Uh, but he rearranged things in a way that it would be easier for people who are not scholars to understand what to do and how to do it. And like people mm. who are really scholars can continue to read the winding debates of the Talmud and the regular folk just need something more straightforward. And in that rearranging, this book called the Mishnah Torah included what we call the laws of repentance, Hilchot Shuva. And when I read the laws of repentance, I see five distinct steps for how you do the work of owning the harm that you have caused, attending to it and doing the work of transformation. Mm, uh, mm. Can you give us just, yeah, yeah. I, we're, I, I want people to read the book. So we are going to, you know, on repentance and repair uh, is the book, but, but we're a taste just like, what are the five steps? If you don't mind articulating those um, and, uh, and then how, you know, some of, maybe we can talk a little bit of like, an example of where you've seen that done well um, so that people might be, you know, not so afraid of actually entering. Cause I think there's a lot of fear about there's like so- entering into this conversation even. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much fear. Um, so, and, and so understandably, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, but, but let's start with the five steps. Okay. So, Number one, um, you have to, is confession. You have to own what you did out loud fully. No hedging, no trying to make yourself look better than really is merited, right? No, what I meant, really, I'm a good person, right? We don't care. Own what you did, name it, which you'll note requires all this pre-work of having to cross this bridge from the story of like, I'm always like the good guy. I never do anything bad, right? You have to kind of acknowledge mm. that, uh, listen, it, you're not an irreparably bad person if you cause harm this one time, right? We are all people and we do stuff. And sometimes the stuff we do is great. And sometimes it's not so great. And when we do the not so great things, we need to clean up. And so you have to 
face the part where today was not, you know, like you, you messed up and name it and own it. And ideally, like it's praiseworthy, Maimonides says, to do it publicly because that is A, asking for accountability, right, from everybody. You're saying, guys, I'm, I'm, I need some help here. Right? I'm struggling like some mm. in some way I was not able to be my best self and I need your help and support to mm. become the kind of person that I want to be. Right. right. right? Yeah. I'm on my journey with anti-racism. I'm struggling with my sobriety. Um, yeah. Right? I don't want to be this angry all the time anymore, whatever it is. Right. Right. Um, so that's owning it. Yes. And it's and it's critical for the victim because this is this can be the end to the gaslighting, uh-huh. right? It can validate their experience, right? It this really happened, and it was not their fault, right? They didn't uh, invite whatever, they didn't lead yeah. anybody, you know, right? It's it's clear and it's clear to everybody. Um, so that's step one, owning it. Step two, begin to change because if mm. you finish this process and then you go around and go do the same thing again. Like there's no, you have, we haven't succeeded. Right. right? right. <laughs> you make future victims like, right. no, which you again, you know, I mean, no. if you say, you know, change takes work, like yes. that's, you know I mean? So that's, again, like all of this is actually very, um, it, it's about actions. Uh, the action of confection, the action of work to change, all of it is like, it's all, but it's, but I think that, you know, I, I think that once you, you is what I, what I'm hearing is a roadmap, mm-hmm. which sometimes is what people lack. Uh, and so, so you, ha- you change and then what can that lead to? So, well, first, you know, like change can be a di- bunch of different things. Like, do you need therapy? Do you need right. to hook up with a spiritual director do you need to call your sponsor do you need to learn more about uh, anti-racism or trans liberation do you need to teach the friends that make you behave badly if if we're talking about an institution that's caused harm does hr need to revise their policies Mm. so Mm. that they don't bury complaints anymore do they need to fire Mm. their board Mm. right Mm. what what needs to happen so that that can't happen again Mm. then we get to amends Right. Then what does the victim need? What kind of care and redress would feel like you can't undo what happened, but it will feel like at least um, it can sew up that hole in the cosmos that Uh has been created. Right. Um, It's it's, uh, you know, it's remuneration. It is reparations. Right. Right. right? Um, Right. And I'm using that word intentionally. No, no, uh, I'm I'm hearing it, and um, and you can't make uh, amends at a person, you because then you're if you decide for them what the reparations are, then you're still treating them as an object instead of a an autonomous subject that gets to decide for themselves. You have to ask yeah. what do you need, and the answer might be different than what you would have assumed, and yeah. that's a learning too, right? Right. And then after amends, after you have done the work of actually fixing in some way, then the apology, right? Action first, uh-huh. second. Oh, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't that isn't that interesting? Like you know, when they say actions speak louder than words, I mean it really. I think that's like super important. 
you know, and I'm just like bl- blown away. We're like, we're still with Maimonides, right? I mean, this is yeah. like, you know, this is someone like 12th century um, uh, dead guy uh, who um, who is like has recognized that this was something going on then. Like mm-hmm. we're, this is not unique to our generation. This is actually yeah. something that is a human situation. And, 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 and people from that long ago and longer have, have had to approach this. So, I mean, I think that's amazing. So we're, we're at step four with apology. Right. And this is, and presumably it's because if you were, if you did the apology right at the confession step, you're still the harm doer, basically, like nothing's changed. And so that's checking a box. Whereas if you've been already all of these things and all of this learning has happened, you're a different person and you get it in a different way. Mm. And so that apology is coming from this place of remorse and a deeper space of being actually able to see the person that you hurt. And it's coming from more open heart. Um, And then uh, after apology, then I, you know, step five is pretty organic. Like if you've done all of this work and you've done it correctly, then pretty easily you get to the last place, which is um, when the opportunity to do the thing again comes up and it always does, you don't do it. You make a different choice. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is so helpful. And I just, you, you kind of imagine this is interpersonal. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this can happen at a familial level. It can happen in certainly in religious institutions. I mean, you know, if you want to drive yourself crazy, listen to pastors talk about how they, you know, women should stay with their abusing husbands and forgive them. I mean, you know, I I mean, it really like I I can't even, you know, I mean, it's I didn't have the language that you've just given me to talk about it. But this is like, you know, you, you know, when you're making that kind of shortcut that it's just non-existent. Um, and, uh, but then it, it can also be society. I mean, you know, when we think about what we're wrestling with, the, with the legacy of slavery in this country and how mm-hmm. fearful people are, white people, I'll say, about like the conversation about reparations, you know, and, and, you know, reparations did happen, by the way, after the end of slavery. It was, it, but it was the white people who got who got money because their slaves were no 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 this is real this is real this is like the the slaver the 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 slavers got money and it was called reparations is that nuts or nuts so you know so so i mean not nuts because you know it's it's just it you know it's not should not be surprising but we have used the term reparations terribly before but our in our country if we think about you know that these this Ain't really, really like relevant, but also, you know, deep Jewish wisdom from the 12th century, we could actually begin down that path. But people are so scared about it um, that it's, you know, it, it's it's terrifying. But also it can be it can be in, um, you know, as you say, it could be institutions. It can be anywhere. I mean, these this is and, and it could, it's all of us, by the way. Like, I like the way you said that. It's just like this is not like those people should really be looking at this. You know, none of us, you know, none of us are, are, um, are perfect. And so this, I mean, I do think like the roadmap idea is like the next time we're in a situation where we're 
we're seeing this. I just think like I, I want to, again, on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. Tell Talk to me about unapologetic. Like that is a really interesting uh, kind of, you know, colon, boom. Like, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you when we say an unapologetic world? I, you know, I know unapologetic is usually used in this like, you know, kind of often in this like kind of corporate white feminism, girl power kind of way, like, ah, ah, ah. but it's it's actually not good to not apologize. <laughs> and the defensiveness that people have right. to not <laughs> actually reckon with the right. harm that right. they have caused, yeah, it's yeah, a problem. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, as you're saying, like, Listen, we're all we all are harm doers. We all have been harmed. We're all bystanders to harm, right? This is this is all of us. Yeah, and, yeah. But there are there are specific things that we should be as a nation. I will say that are not equal and and that are con- will continue to plague us until we until we you know. And I know you you know this much better than I do. But like you know, until we until we address the you know the kind of extraordinary misogyny and racism uh in this country it's just not you know we we're not going to become the the nation that we i think envision for ourselves right and and we and and i really truly believe that these five stages of repentance could truly bring us to a more equal equitable and just and whole future for our country and I, I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, the, the 1619 Project was mm. an extraordinary invitation, right? It's, it was a is extraordinary truth telling, right? Is sort of laid bare all of the ways that the legacy of slavery and the way that white supremacy is shot through in pretty much every aspect of American life, right? It's in housing. Mm. It's in the medical. Uh, every aspect of the medical world is in our traffic patterns, right? <laughs> or the way our traffic patterns work is mm. shot through white supremacy, right? Music, everything, everything, everything. And um, when it was published, it was, well, I don't, that's not the confession step because the confession has to come from the harm doer. Right. In this case, I would say on the level of national harm, we're talking about the U.S. government, right? We're not talking about every individual white person. Right. No, no, and, no. Yeah. And, and folks listening, there's a difference between responsibility and guilt. It's okay to be white. I'm white, right? That, that we just, you don't have to feel bad, but you do have to see that there's a problem and decide to yeah. be part of a solution, God. right? Don't, don't, don't yeah. get me going down the CRT, like, ridiculous. Oh, what happened? Right. But that's the thing. She yeah. in, she basically said, here, here's some truth, guys. Can we open up the story and, and do some confession, start to the confession and the start to change stuff? And uh, America said, no. In fact, we are going to pass 30, 36 states have passed laws saying we are not going to teach accurate history or not. We're not going to teach about anti-racism or whatever. Right? Yeah, I mean, so so that the the entire process has basically been um, basically stopped. Uh, right. There, you know, it, it you know, so um, right. You know, I, uh, I can I say, can I say one more thing about this? Yeah, please. One more thing that I think is really important as we talk about reparations and talk about grappling with the legacy of slavery and the you know hundreds of years of systemic racism 
is that it's very tempting to want to say like, oh, the United States should should offer reparations to black Americans and then everything will be fixed. And this is the whole this is where I think this guideline can help remind us that that's not so simple. Right. First, own the harm. Then number two, make start to change, like make sure the harm can't happen again. Mm. So that means looking at all of the ways that white supremacy mm. and systemic mm. racism drive our country and, and working on changing that. If we, you know, pass out some money that one time and say, great, we're done, we fixed it. And then all of our systems are still irredeemably racist. Yeah. We haven't actually done the work. Right. Right. No, thank you. I mean, I, I, we're, we're, we're close to time, but I do want to just, you know, I want to address um, what has to be troubling for all Jewish Americans. Uh, It's troubling for me is, is this, the, 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 the rise of anti-Semitism and the permission being given. I wonder how you're thinking about that in terms of your own safety and your community. And as someone who actually has a big picture of American like society, like how, how are you talking about the way we, we should be talking about anti-Semitism in this particular moment? For the last thousand years, how anti-Semitism has functioned is that during times of instability or crisis, the people in power have said, blame the Jews, not us. And so the then there's the pogrom and then there's the expulsion and there, then there's the whatever. And so the peasants, instead of being mad at whoever's actually in power, they go after the Jews, right? You look at Christian history in Europe. That's basically what happened. That's that's how we got the Holocaust. That's, that's it. Uh, that's the protocols of the elders of Zion and the czar trying to start things up in the 1905 revolution. And that's what's happening now. Right. Blame the Jews, not us. That is why anti-Semitism undergirds Christian nationalism to say you know, nothing of the fact that, you know, all the streams of Christianity that are mad that the Jews never converted. But um, we have to just name that and keep naming that and naming the ways that that anti-Semitism functions as as this shadow you know it's like the it works as a sh- like a, the shadowy the cabal the deep state the you know the the people behind the scenes the people pulling the strings like those tropes are meant to be uh, you know like it's supposed to be hard to to name and hard to grasp and so of course we're seeing it now and of course we're seeing it with the rise of christian nationalism and Many Jews in America are white. And so we have white privilege. Not all Jews are white. And so we have to be able to hold both our benefit, the fact that we benefit from white privilege and the fact that we are targeted by white nationalism. Like those are both true. And our bottom line is we have to be in solidarity with everybody else. We have to, white supremacy is the enemy. And, you know, it's solidarity or bust. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, we're, I think that this is like, I think helping us see how this is part of a, a broader moment that we're, we're in, um, and, and not like some sort of separate thing, but also something really that is, I mean, you know, is really affecting, you know, individuals, families, really fearful 
um, the kind of rhetoric. And I have to say, like, you know, the 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 craziness of uh, the former president talking about how, like, Jews better get it together because, you know, I've been the best on Israel. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 everything he's doing right now is just textbook division um, and and this terrible trope about, like, you know, dual – I mean, it, I, I can't even go there. It, it was just like it's, it is um, – you know, it's a, it's we're, – we're in a moment where it's very the, – the, the strings are so tangled that if you don't watch out, it's just going to tangle us all and we're going to find ourselves, uh, you know, completely in a mess. More yeah, mess. I mean – what Trump did was actually textbook white nationalism, right? Yeah. The Jews, like white America is white people's white, white, white people's um, country. Jews don't belong here. Jews belong in Israel. And by the way, he's also playing to the evangelicals who want the Jews right. all to go to Israel so that the war of Gog and Magog can happen. And nobody cares about Palestinians in this scenario, of course. Yeah, like, right, right. No, no, no. Um, yeah. But that the Jews and Palestinians basically blow each other up and then the rapture happens. And so it's not actually caring about the sanctity of Jewish life. And yeah. it's also completely ignoring the fact that, like, I'm sorry, I'm an American. <laughs> like, this is my country. Um, I am not Israeli. You're right. And um, this yeah, is my country. I mean... Yeah, you're right. But it's so it's it's um, it's the dual dual loyalty yeah. but it, it's basically it's 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 white nationalism yeah and, um and white nationalism and, and christian nationalism have, have become friends all right rabbi i am asking all of our guests today to list three books that they love in addition to their own uh to share with our listeners who, who would you like for our listeners to know about so um, one of the books that just blew me out of the water this year was called Becoming Kin, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining the future by Patty Crowick. And um, she's a native writer. She's in Canada, so First Nations. And it's visionary. It both teaches people how to to decolonize their thinking and then invites them in right it's about becoming kin invites them into the world in which native thinking and native visions are centered but that includes and expands for everybody right and and offers a profound vision of what can be um, i love that love that yeah and um, there's a book of poems by a friend of mine, actually, Hila Ratsabi. It's called There Are Still Woods. And it is, I mean, she's brilliant. And it is a, a haunting book of, uh, it's, it's a love song to nature, but it's a, a haunting um, kind of elegy in the face of uh, you know, global disaster, mm. right? Mm. In the face of, of the burning, um, the burning of our planet. And, and this moment of poignancy, both understanding where we are and yeah. yeah. So it, just naming where we are in a really profound way. Say that, say the title and the author again. So it's called, There Are Still Woods. 
and it's Hila Ratsabi. Mm, great. Um, and one more? Yeah. One more is um, probably going to be named by other people, but I can't not. Um, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. Trisha Hersey is um, the Knapp Bishop and her work talking about rest as reparations mm. is so important. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Jewish thinking about Shabbat as uh, anti-capitalist and the first labor laws and, and all of that. But her her reading of the, the importance of rest specifically for Black people whose labor has been exploited for hundreds of years is so important. Amazing. Thank you so much for those three books. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, a scholar in residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Her latest book is titled On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Danya, I really appreciate having you with us today on State of Belief Radio. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, Harun Mogul, author of Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision for a Muslim Future. And later, the author of The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, Simran Jeet Singh. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. It's been over 12 years since the first time Haroon Mogul was on this program. He's been, he's been back many times since then, increasingly as a successful author. Earlier this year, Haroon released his latest book entitled Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision of a Muslim Future, and it's among our favorites for 2022. Haroon, welcome. Thank you for having me. I can't believe it's been 12 years. You get a special medal that you have to wear every time you uh, talk to the show. Uh, but we're thrilled. And also, congratulations on this book. Tell me why you felt like this was the book that you wanted to write right now. So I I had written a book called How to Be a Muslim, which was actually the story of how most of my life up till then I had tried and failed to be a certain kind of Muslim. So it was a little bit tongue in cheek. But uh, not everybody got the joke. And many folks came to talks and picked up the book thinking it would be just that, a, a guide to being Muslim, which I thought was quite audacious for a book that's not that long. And it, it got me thinking that maybe I should actually write a book about what it means to be a Muslim. And so the initial idea was, was quite simple. It was just supposed to be a little introduction to Islam. Uh, and, and as I started writing, it, it transformed itself completely from who are Muslims in the past and, and maybe the present uh, into uh, who can Muslims be and who should Muslims be. So from a book that looked to uh, what had come before to a book that was looking into what was coming ahead and how to prepare for it. Amazing. And so the, the title is Two Billion Caliphs. Can you say, explain to us what a caliph is, uh, which not everybody might um, understand that reference. So probably most people have heard the term if they've heard the term in reference to either historical caliphates, uh, kind of like empires, dynasties, monarchies, that sort of thing. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was was the the probably the most formidable of those and probably the most well known. And then uh, in, in much more unfortunate circumstances, the ISIS iteration, which popped up 
um, before COVID and, and was quite brutal, but fortunately short-lived, although it did uh, a tremendous amount of damage in, in the regions where it operated. And so the term I think was, was in currency in Muslim spaces as well as in public conversations. And I wanted to investigate the term. And the more I looked into the Islamic sources, specifically the Quran, actually the original iteration of caliphate, the first use of the term is as a word that describes Adam and Eve, and then uh, in, in theory and in ambition, all of humanity, that every single person, uh, or at least Muslims in, in this uh, version, are caliphs, as in we are stewards or custodians of God's creation, that we have a special authority and a special responsibility and a certain kind of unique moral agency. And I wanted to dwell on that and, and stop focusing so much on hierarchical models of Muslimness that constantly try to slot us into certain positions vis-a-vis -vis one another with a few at the top and everyone else at the bottom just going along into something that was more democratic, more organic, uh, more local and, and more resilient. And certainly I thought that was something we needed for uh, the years and decades ahead. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, you know, this... You know, I, I come from the Baptist tradition, which right now there's like Baptists who call themselves bishops and all this kind of stuff. But the real like foundation of it is like really like radical priesthood of all believers and and the soul freedom and the, the sense that every single person is uh, is able to have that full dignity of a full like, you know, a, a full Christian and that there's actually no one else that has that over them. And I think the idea that this is totally new to me, by the way, and thank you for the writing this already, you know, this idea of the, the, the caliph is something that, you know, every Muslim can embody is just, I think, a very powerful idea, especially as we look around the country. You know, I'm thinking about Iran immediately, but this idea of like who gets to say for who another person what a Muslim is, and, you know, I, not to single out Islam, that happens in every tradition. You're not a Christian, you're not a Jew, you know, but I think, you know, right now we see that in so many places around the country, like certain people, the gatekeepers of what, you know, what, what counts as Muslim. I really appreciate that you're putting in that work. Like, so for, what did you uncover or, you know, discover? I, I like to say that for me, like writing is revelation. Like often, you know, when I when I have to preach or I have to do something and I start writing, I'm like, oh, I didn't even know I thought that. I'm wondering if you had that experience. Like what did you uncover uh, or what was revealed when you started writing this book about uh, specifically about what counts as being a Muslim? Well, so so when I started writing the book, it was it was before COVID. And so we lived in a very different world and uh, certainly a very different world than, than what has transpired in the last year. And, and there's two events in specific I want to focus on. The first is a little bit more than a year ago, uh, the fall of Kabul and the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. And then not so many months later, the, the Russian invasion, or I guess second invasion, depending on how you look at it, uh, of, of Ukraine uh, in February. So coming up on almost a year now. And I think those two events together, if, if you take them as bookends, they really mark the end of uh, the, the post 9-11 era. That, that in the United States, pretty much across the board, Islam is no longer the bogeyman. Uh, there are certainly Islamophobia and, and there is bias against Muslims, but we are not in, in the public consciousness as the biggest problem. Some, some people make that China, some people make that Russia, uh, some folks will make that the other political party, uh, but certainly we're kind of lower down on, on the scale now. And, and what that meant to me was really for the first time, 
Muslim communities, certainly in the West, but for perhaps more broadly, for the first time in, in two decades, we are free from a certain kind of weaponized binary that, that some Muslims advanced and, and some folks in the West advanced that you're either on this side or that side. And so I asked myself, who are we going to be now? Who should we be? Who can we be? And, and that's where I, I went to the idea of caliphate, literally to get to what you're saying, this idea of, of the sort of the, the priesthood of all believers kind of thing is, is not so dissimilar, is this idea that everyone is judged by God as an individual and something I was always vexed by growing up. I came from a pretty religious family. America and I, I think maybe Canada are the most ethnically diverse Muslim nationalities in the world, which is kind of fascinating and kind of amazing. And you get these Muslims from all different backgrounds kind of thrown together by geography, economy, what have you. And suddenly they have to find a place to pray. And one family, I'd say, is coming from Senegal, one family is coming from Indiana, one family is coming from Pakistan, and they're all equally convinced that what they're doing is authentically Islam. And, and at, you know, at least outwardly, no one can judge and you know look into someone's heart, but outwardly, everyone is committed to this tradition, yet has very different ideas of what that means. And so that was one take on it. But the other was that people didn't want to yield their take because of this idea of, of universal individual accountability, that actually... Uh, Islam is contrary to how many people present it, including in Muslim spaces, you mentioned Iran, and Iran is a perfect case in point. It is a very individualistic religion in the sense that every human being, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, what have you, uh, has to stand before God for judgment. And, and you can't really pass the buck. Uh, of course, obviously, people have different levels of capacity in the world and, and different things to answer for. Uh, certainly, if you have more power, you have more responsibility. But at the end of the day, we have choices and we have freedom or we should have choice and we should have freedom. So that's really where this came from, this idea of, OK, now we can we can imagine a different kind of future. We have to imagine a different kind of future. And what is the role of faith in that future? Mm, I think that is incredibly powerful. When you look, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the Quran is, you know, is revelation like are there areas in the quran that you that you found as you were writing like i don't think that that has quite been lifted up, you know lifted up the way i'm seeing it right now i mean i'm curious if there's anything from uh the holy scripture or i may be calling it wrong but i think you all understand what i mean is uh that that sprang to life for you as you were writing this book that maybe you hadn't paid as much attention to before well, certainly one thing did jump out is that many of the descriptions of the divine in the Islamic tradition tend to focus on otherness. And so, uh, and this is common in, in the Abrahamic tradition. There are elements of this in Judaism and Christianity, certainly, of, of the divine as so different from us as to be somewhat incomprehensible, uh, certainly uh, different in terms of uh, limitless, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, not bound by time and space, uh, perfectly coherent with with itself himself however you want to frame it and and that the way i saw this translated in muslim spaces created a sense of distance and and one thing that occurred to me as i was reading this is is that certainly there is something to be said for that kind of distance and and we can mine that for for days weeks months what have you but there is also a, a kind of interesting impact or or uh, a consequence of the distance which is intimacy is that uh, a divine that is uh, completely independent of creation uh, is the kind of divine that creation can always turn to. Uh, that unlike anything and everything else in existence, uh, you know, no matter how much we want to do for, let's say, a spouse, a loved one, a child, a parent, uh, a coworker, a friend, we can't always be there for them. 
it's just it's simply impossible and and as we learned in covid no matter how wealthy or sophisticated our societies have become we can be felled and slowed and stopped by things that are literally invisible to the naked eye and and so there is this sense that everything in the world is contingent but the divine uh being necessary and and self-sufficient is a kind of a rope to hold on to a hand to hold on to and so maybe one of the reasons for the distance is to enable intimacy and it, it so, mm. sounds counterintuitive that how can you be connected to something that is so radically different from us that that we can't even really get our heads around it but maybe that's the point or at least part of the point. no I, I i actually i think the way you're describing it is really striking it, it occurs to me like if you were if you were sinking you wouldn't want to send a you know you wouldn't want a, a rope that you were sending to yourself. Yeah. You'd want a rope that was sent by something completely different than you that you could hold on to and pull yourself out. You know, I mean, like, it, so I think that this idea of radical, um, you know, intimacy and radically different is actually really powerful. It makes me think that, like, I, I'm sure that this book, you, your audience probably was the Muslim community. But my guess is that, it, you know, for many of us reading this book, it, it's, it can be, you know, we can, we can have a, a better insight into a community, but, but also learn spiritual wisdom for ourselves. Certainly. And, and I took a lot out of my engagement with other faith traditions. So yeah. learning how Jewish scholars or Christian scholars or Buddhist scholars approach their tradition I think opens up space for us intellectually, creatively, uh, with compassion uh, to see things from different perspectives and maybe understand ideas uh, in different ways. And, and I think that's something that uh, all people of faith have to do, especially now, where I think the challenges that are ahead of us, they're not insurmountable, but they're pretty big. Uh, things like climate change, uh, certainly a lot of the instability we see in our politics, uh, and, and even just the, the jumbling of humanity that we now live in. Uh, I've just been uh, watching the World Cup, for example, and it is kind of remarkable that that here we have arrived as a species at a point where we are literally bringing together many countries of the world. And that's not to say that everything's done right or, or everything's above board, but that's a level of interconnectedness and immediacy that that a few generations ago we could have never imagined. And that's certainly a yeah. beautiful thing, but it's a challenging thing because it, it forces us up into each other's faces in a way that we never had to be before. And and what are the the moral, the spiritual, the human resources that allow us to survive that and and not be manipulated through that uh, to two outcomes that are actually bad for us individually, never mind uh, each other, you know, as communities and countries. Yeah, I mean, it actually like the the proximity it, it does. It presents to us an immediate sort of like, OK, we can make this good or bad. You know, and it really is like it's like almost that simple. Like we can learn about one another and celebrate one another. We can like, you know, we can make that a opportunity for um, for a closer engagement and a mutual enrichment. Or we can just decide to hate one another. And like, you know, you know it, it almost is that simple. And the United States is like a, a really good example of that. And like that in motion. I'm curious when you think about a, a vision of a Muslim future, let's take that really like, you know, to, to our own country and like, what will look good to you as a Muslim and for the Muslim community and for America as a whole in like 25 years, if we could somehow do this right. And I love, you know, what I love about what I'm hearing you is like, there is a kind of a, a, a positive frame 
uh, and, and yet it's going to take work. But what, what would it look like? Like, what will a positive future look like? And then, then walk us through what we need to do to get there. Sure. So, I, you know, it's it's funny because this connects to a question I know you're going to ask me later, but there's a there's a saying by I believe it was Dwight Eisenhower that that every American has to have a religion, but I, I don't care which one it is. I'm, I'm sure I'm garbling that up. But uh, effectively, what he was saying is that America as a democracy only functions if there are civil religions. And, and I think there's something to that. So after 9-11, there was a lot of conversation about whether Islam and the West were compatible. And I think these were often very superficial or zero sum conversations. And and where I stand now is I think that that for the United States, uh, you know, we as a country and actually the Islamic tradition have certain similarities. And, and these are these are similarities that exist in a lot of traditions. So I don't mean by any means uh, to say that this is simply exclusive to Islam as a faith tradition. It's just the faith tradition that I know well. Uh, but in the Islamic tradition, there is this idea of individual agency, which certainly you find in Christianity and Judaism and Sikhism and other faith traditions. And what that means is that Ultimately, what Muslims are doing on a day-to-day basis is applying their moral reasoning and their circumstances and contexts and emotions and, and needs to sacred text. And, and we as Americans, obviously America is a political idea, it's not a religion, but we do something similar. That, that That's what it means to be in a democracy. And, and we have to learn how to respect each other's rights to do that. Now, one thing I think mm-hmm. as a Muslim makes this a little easier for us is that I've never really had a problem accepting that mainstream culture doesn't go my way. So, for example, we've seen a lot of conversation in certain Christian spaces around uh, losing America, quote and unquote, that America is turning on Christianity. And I can't quite see it that way as a Muslim, principally because I've, I've never imagined just for demographic reasons that America would really be a society that would follow my cultural or religious norms. So, uh, you know, as a, as a very trite, silly example, it never bothered me when someone said Merry Christmas because I just assume that I, you know, I live in a country where most people are Christian or, or uh, culturally Christian. And so that's just what it is. And, and so, you know, I didn't get off Friday afternoon, but as long as I had a reasonable accommodation, I kind of didn't mind. And I think we're reaching a point as a country of pluralism where we're going to have to learn how to accept each other's rights, especially in the really awkward places where they bump up against each other. And I think part of that requires a shift. So in a lot of Muslim spaces, we have a lot of talk of responsibility, not a lot of talk of rights. So in, in Iran, for example, there's not a lot of talk about human rights from the governmental level, right? Certainly there's a lot of talk about responsibility uh, as in what the state will enforce and expect you to do. And I think in the US, we've gone too far in the other direction that we have a lot of talk about rights, but we don't have a lot of talk about responsibility. And so if we look at the conversation around COVID, I'm not really sure how we became as a country, uh, you know, I don't remember anyone really up in arms over seatbelts, for example, right? No one, I don't really recall that anyone saw that as an unjust imposition on our freedom. It was just sort of a reasonable- Oh, I think some people did, but it's a good example. (laughs) I think there were, I I actually think people thought that was like, oh, the communists are coming to get us by- by Maybe maybe we have communism in our Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, uh, but but it's it's a perfect example, like, you know- um, yeah, yeah. And so and, and that's the thing is, I think that's that kind of uh, and that's a good point. So maybe these are the kind of things that fade over time and we get used to them and, and right. move on. Well, that's I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, but but I, yeah, y- your point is good. And so I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Keep no, going. not at all. Not at all. And, and so I guess what, what I'm trying to say in terms of a future is I'd like to see a future where Muslims, along with other people of, of strong ethical traditions, whether religious, spiritual, uh, moral, philosophical, what have you, contribute to creating the civil, organic, uh, apolitical fabric out of which 
a rich democratic society is created. It, it can't be top oh, down. It has yeah. to be bottom up and, and side to side, that kind of thing, because that's what really takes, uh, I think that's what democracies require to function well. And if you don't have that, you, you have either absolute chaos, uh, so you have civil conflict, uh, or you have dictatorship. And I think both are uh, fundamentally hostile to the human spirit, never mind human flourishing. Yeah, I love that. Oh my God, that's so great. Before I let you go, I want you to offer three um, books that you think, um, in addition to your own Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision for a Muslim Future, what are three books that struck you this year? Um, we've been talking about bumping up against ideas. What are three books that have uh, struck you? Sure. So one book that I loved was Arthur Brooks's From Strength to Strength. So I'm 42, and this is a book about the second half of life. Uh, I don't know if, if you've read it. I just I found it really interesting and enjoyable because here's, you know, an obviously very smart man uh, thinking about the second half of life, literally. And, and what does it mean to prosper and flourish? And and what has he learned along the way? And so there's a lot mm. of wisdom there about how we change or rather should change and, and age gracefully and intelligently. And and I, I think really the core idea is that he says that, you know, up until your 30s and, and maybe your early 40s, maybe uh, you know, you're very good at assimilating new information. So you're more open to change. Uh, you're, you can learn new skills. And starting in our 40s, we develop a different talent, which is to synthesize information. And so it, he's really mm. saying that you should, you should learn as much as you can. And then that's where wisdom comes from, is that as we get older, through experience, we learn how to combine uh, even novel information. And, you know, he had this great anecdote that, he once was at a, a, a workshop held by, I think it was Meta or some big company, you know, the, the, mm. the former Facebook, and they were lauding their diversity. And he kind of raised his hand and said, there's no one here over 28. And, and he said, <laughs> you know, maybe you'll have a little bit of a different perspective on the world if you've lived through more of the world. And, and it was oh, a really good so interesting. That, yeah. And, and yeah. I think as we get older, we realize that that you know, we can now we look at, for example, social media and say, hey, you know, some of that stuff should have been pretty obvious. That, that maybe, yeah. you know, human beings shouldn't have that much information all at once, right? That kind of thing. Well, as a, as a 58-year-old, I will say that, you know, you just get so wise at my age. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I just the oozing wisdom, as you can tell. All right. That that sounds amazing. The, the, that was Arthur Arabic Brooks. Term, shake, like a shake. What? The, the Arabic term shake. Literally. Oh, yes. I mean, it's usually meant to mean someone who's wise, a learned elder, but literally yeah. means someone who has white hair. And so my question is, oh. what happens to someone who has no hair? Is that like, oh, yeah. is like okay. an elevated but, status that I've achieved? Yeah, mm, like yeah. but complete... from now on, please do call me Shake Paul because I, will, I do I, have white hair one. now. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I like that. Okay, Arthur, say the name one more time. Arthur, Arthur Brooks, Brooks uh, the author, and the book is called From Strength to Strength. From Strength uh, to a, Strength. It's an easy Beautiful. read. It's a okay. short book. It's a yeah. great book. Yeah. The second one is also a short one. It's called uh, Wild Problems by Russ mm. Roberts, uh, who was at the University of Chicago and I believe now is president of a university in Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know him oh, personally. I've, I've never met him. I, I came across his book randomly in the library and the librarian said, hey, this is a great book. It's a very slim book and it's just a little book on why we have so much trouble making big decisions. And I would strongly recommend it to anyone who is confronting a major life choice, such as uh, you know, major career choice, uh, marriage, divorce, what have you. Uh, it's a oh, really... Wow novel take on why big decisions elude us 
and yeah and it's a it's a really thought-provoking read so i just i really liked yeah, it i recommend that, it that's so, amazing say the name one more time so it's called wild problems as in you know untamed yeah, wild yeah uh, and, right, and the author's right. name is russ roberts russ roberts yeah. i think what i what i don't want to hide the fact that you actually went to a library and asked a librarian or listen to a li- I mean, thank God for libraries. Thank God for yes. librarians is all I'll say. That's I think beautiful. It's, it's great yeah. to have people who, <laughs> yeah, and, and they read and they know books and it's, it's wonderful. Amazing. Yes, yes. Good. Okay, what's your last one? Okay, the third one is, is a little bit of a, a, a fun one. So I don't know how to pronounce the author's name. Her first name is Eric or her last name is Fatland, F-A-T-L-A-N-D. I appreciate okay. the irony because most people often struggle with my name, but she's Norwegian. So the book is, uh, it's called uh, Borderland. Uh, it's a its a big fat book uh, and it's originally in Norwegian. Uh, I of course read the English translation so I can't comment on the original but it's quite entertaining and funny and weirdly prescient because she being from Norway was very curious about one of Norway's neighbors, Russia. And I guess one day opened an atlas and realized that Russia borders I believe 14 countries. And so she decided to basically travel the border of Russia uh, and of mm. course, this was before the Ukraine war when uh, I, right. now I think that's probably not possible or, or perhaps a very good idea. Uh, but it's a really charming, fun, funny book uh, just about a woman who's really observant, really witty, really clever, really smart, really curious, uh, traveling through societies that uh, some of them she knows about, some of them she doesn't know about. And she has a knack like uh, great travel writers for finding the really weird stuff. Uh, that somehow oh, it, it sounds really amazing. It's a good read. Borderland. Uh, I think it came out three or four years ago. I could be wrong, but it's a, it's a what? Fun one. This is supposed to be 2022. I mean, I'm perpetually behind. I will. Okay. All right. I'm, All right. Well, Harun, we're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna we're we're gonna let it go. But yes. Okay. Um, Harun Mughal is an author, public speaker, and occasional Friday preacher who works to build a vibrant role for faith in shaping a better future. Haroon's latest book is titled Two Billion Caliphs, A Vision for a Muslim Future. Haroon, thank you for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me, Sheikh Paul. It is always exciting to find shared values and teachings across diverse faith traditions. And while the tenets of the Sikh religion may not be known to many non-Sikhs, there's a lot in the book, The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life, that's utterly relatable and that is inspiring and illuminating. And part of that is because of the person who wrote the book, my good friend, Simranjit Singh, who I am delighted to welcome to this show. Simran, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Good to be with you. Well, so first of all, for those who, for whom um, the Sikh religion is is not something that they are familiar with, can you just give us the, um, you know, the kind of Reader's Digest version of, of, so that people can come into the room with us with some background of of where you're coming from and what the what the religion is is all about. Yeah, sure. You know, one of one of the interesting things about the Sikh religion is why almost uh, Americans have not heard of it or don't know much about it. It is the world's fifth largest uh, religion with about 30 million people worldwide. It's also one of the younger major religions. It was started about 500 years ago um, in the Punjab region of South Asia. And and the core philosophy really relies on three elements, I would say. Uh, the first is uh, 
a, a deep belief in oneness, the connectedness of all humanity. Um, and that, you know, comes out in various ways, theologically, in terms of how we see equality, uh, non-discrimination, um, how we see the importance of caring for the people around us uh, and the environment, uh, because everything we see is divine. Uh, the second element is is what I would describe in English as love. Um, and it's, it's a very simple connection here. And that is when you truly feel connected uh, to the world and the people around you, uh, then that's a feeling of love. And, and we know that through mm -hmm. our relationships and, and the, the promise of sick wisdom is that those momentary uh, experiences of goodness that we have through love is something that we can have in all moments of our life. Uh, if we are, if we learn how to appreciate the connectedness that we all have, and then the the third aspect of of Sikh philosophy that I that I find really compelling um, is is a corollary to these two. If if you feel connected and love for the world around you, then your natural impulse is to show up in service. Um, and so, service, what we call seva in our tradition, uh, is a really powerful practice, both in terms of uh, it be an expression of gratitude and devotion, uh, serving the people around you, and also uh, as, a, as a spiritual practice um, for, for the self as a way of reducing the ego. So those, those three pieces of Sikh mm -hmm. philosophy, um, I, think, I think, create a really nice uh, vision for, for what I want uh, the world to look like and, and what it looks like to, to find happiness in a, in a society that can also always often feel difficult. I think, you know, we've already gotten a taste perhaps of the light we give, how sick wisdom can transform your life. But I'd like to talk a little bit about your own background because you're you're a Texan boy. And, you know, and, and it's not necessarily like the first thing people think about, oh, yeah, sick is, you know, obviously San Antonio, you know, big, big Spurs fan, uh, you know. So but tell it tell me a little bit about um, your background, where you come from. And, you know, I think I think part of part of what I love about your book is that it's also, it's very much connected with you. Um, and it's not like, it's not like specific to you or unique to you, but it is rooted in an experience in a life. So maybe you can tell a little bit about like your own, you know, where you come from as you write this book. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. You know, when I first started writing the book, I, I just wanted to share about this uh, worldview and this philosophy that I that I love and, and that has given so much to me. So th there was never any intention uh, that I had about sharing from my own life. And and as I started writing and sharing with my editor uh, and and my agent, they both started saying, "Well, where's the story here? Right? Like we we need we need a vehicle for understand. Like nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares about philosophy. Uh, we we care about people. And so so bring yourself into the story a little bit and, and tell us." just what it's like to be a sick in this country. And, you know, to some degree that felt strange because we, you know, we all have our lives. They, they all feel normal to us. Um, and, and as I started talking to people, I started to understand that um, maybe my experience as a uh, turban wearing sick growing up in Texas is unfamiliar to a lot of people. And, and some of the challenges that I faced um, can help people see the world a little bit differently. Um, and so that's that's the why uh, behind uh, sharing a bit of my story as part of the book. And, um, you know, for, for me, as, as a kid growing up in Texas, we, we were the only ones in South Texas and in, in the whole region uh, who wore turbans. And my brothers and me, you know, for in many ways, our lives were very 
typical, uh, very much into sports, um, got along great with our friends and our neighbors and our classmates, uh, a lot of close friendships uh, and, and a really overall a lovely childhood. Uh, but interspersed with that was uh, uh, daily challenges uh, with racism and people's ignorance. And, and that shaped a lot of my experiences in this country and, and what my life has looked like today, too. Um, and, and perhaps the most um, formative moment for me that, that really changed the trajectory of my life came after 9-11. And, and Paul, you and I have talked about this before. Um, and, you know, this is not a unique story for for people in my community and, and for other communities that were affected by the racist backlash after 9-11. Um, but as I started walking around uh, San Antonio and, and as people started to treat me differently uh, and to perceive me differently, you know, before I was in many ways just different. Uh, and now all of a sudden I was the enemy. Uh, and it's not that I had changed. Uh, it's that people's perceptions of me changed. I really had to figure out um, a few things about about my life, right? What, why, why was I choosing to look this way? And is it something I wanted to continue? That was that was a big question for me. Uh, another one is what do you do when when your understanding of yourself uh, is different from how other people perceive you? And to what extent do you take that seriously? To what extent do you ignore it? Um, in, in what ways might it be dangerous or risky uh, to not take it seriously? But I think, you know, th these are all questions that we all face in various ways. And, and the last one I think really uh, that hit home for me was recognizing the challenges uh, that religious minorities in this country face, uh, racial minorities in this country face. You know, I was, I was experiencing both at the same time and, and really wanted to figure out how I could serve these communities in ways that they could have equal access to, to opportunity and justice in this country as, as we've always promised. And so that that experience yeah. of my life growing up really shaped who I've become. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Mohammed Ali, who was from Impact, who was talking to us about the the bill in, in the House, uh, uh, Resolution 662, which was to recognize the violence that happened to Muslims and people perceived as Muslims after 9-11. And as has been clearly demonstrated, um, the Sikh community uh, was mistaken <laughs> for Muslims and experienced violence and hate in terrible measures. And so I think that, you know, that that resolution is still um, present in the House. And, and I encourage listeners to to consider how we might show up for people who were experiencing that after 9-11. I appreciate you bringing that into them. I also think it's really important to recognize that religion never happens without people. And so the stories of people is really important as we think about like and and really how it shapes us, how it how it manifests in different ways and different people. And so your experience is not is not the only sick experience, but it is like it's an entry point for many people who haven't had an opportunity uh, to meet folks. Um, what is a one tenant that in those moments when you have felt most challenged, like is there a is there a piece of the the scripture um, or that or you know some sort of tenant that really has helped you in really moments where you were like how am I going to get through this? Yeah, you know there 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 are a bunch that I turn to um, and they've increased over the years as the challenges have grown and I've grown older. Um, but one that comes to mind immediately, and I was thinking about this uh, the other day uh, in a tough moment. 
uh, you know, I was, I was, I was walking down the street after an event in New York city and, um, and, and a guy came after me, um, not, not chasing me, but he sort of stepped up to me. Um, and, and he started yelling at me saying, get out of here with your effing turban. Um, and, um, you know, in those moments, you had these moments all my life, you don't really know what the right response is. I think in part, because there is no, there is no perfect response and, and getting comfortable with the reality, uh, that these situations, because of how we've set them up as a society, um, it's, it's always going to be imperfect and you're always going to walk away feeling like that was, that was a situation I would have rather not had. Um, but what I, what I think about in these moments is, is this, uh, this concept that comes up early in our tradition, uh, in our scripture called nidbo. It, it, it comes as two words, nidbo and nidvad. And nidbo means without fear and nidvad means without hate. And they're essentially descriptions of the divine. Uh, but as descriptions of the divine, they're also qualities that we aspire towards. And there's this one line that came to my mind in this moment. Um, and it comes up often for me in, in, in situations like this, where it's, it's really unclear how to respond. And, and, and the line from scripture is, And it's, it's, it's essentially saying the truly wise person is one who doesn't give in to fear and, and who doesn't inspire fear in others. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough tightrope to walk sometimes in a moment like this, I could feel afraid of this person. And I, I, that's the natural impulse. So, so how do I live into fearlessness in this moment where this person may very well attack me? I mean, he's very angry at me for whatever reason. And also how do I respond in a way that's not hateful or angry or fear inspiring, but, but is compassionate to this person. And so that is, that's something that's been really important yeah. for me personally in, in moments yeah. like this. I can I can imagine. I mean, the the title you gave to the book is "The Light We Give." What what where does that come from? What what inspired that title? Mm, well, you know, I mean, you just kind of you just you just kind of articulated a little bit of the you know yeah. some of the background of how to give light. But I'm just curious if there's if there's another ref, another reference point for that. Yeah, you know, light is such a common reference in religious traditions. Um, whether we're talking about um, enlightenment uh, as an achievement, if we're talking about illumination uh, in, in context of darkness, um, I, I think it's it's such a beautiful metaphor. And, and part of what Sikh philosophy uh, teaches us is that everyone has the same divine light uh, within us. And, and, you know, part of part of what I wanted to do in, in the time, I mean, I'm, I'm a dad, I love dad jokes, I love puns and double entendres and so, you're like infamous for dad jokes actually so we may we may ask you to to um gently harm us with one later but yeah go ahead well i i, I love the the entendre of um you know the light we give being something you, you give off light and also it's something that we can choose to share with others but but in the in, in this sort of the the framing of the title in in both cases um, there's something implicit about we just do this, whether you choose to accept it or not, the uh -huh. light is inside uh -huh. of you. Um, oh, and part that. of the Sikh philosophy, the teaching is the difference between those who are able to find joy in life 
and those who continue to, to suffer because of the various difficulties we face is, is the ability and the practice of learning to see the light that's always all around us. Um, and so that is, that's something that's been such a powerful teaching for me. I, I love that concept. And so I was trying to bring that into the title a little bit. Beautiful. You mentioned um, children and, you know, we, we had uh, our friend Rabbi Stanton uh, on uh, last week and, and we have, we've had, you know, I, I'm also a dad. What does it mean to you to try to imagine passing this tradition on to your children? Mm. It's it's an interesting question because in some ways I think it's very similar to how my parents thought about it as immigrants. You know, for them, growing up in a country where, and at least a region of North India where there were many Sikhs, and then moving to a place where there weren't any, they had to be very differently intentional. Um, about how to raise kids and, and preserve the tradition. Um, I find I find the same thing to be true here in New York City, where we are surrounded by incredible diversity, um, but we have to make a lot of effort. Um, you know, what my kids are learning in school um, is is wonderful and great, but they're not learning about their heritage, and that's that's on us at home. Um, we make extraordinary effort. I mean, we we go out to Jersey of all places every every weekend. Uh, for their Punjabi school so that they're learning their language and their culture. Um, we teach, you know, traditional Sikh music to them at home. Uh, we speak Punjabi with them when we can. Um, and so it is, it's very, it's very much how, how so many other people transmit whatever part of their cultural heritage is important. And I, I think the one thing that feels a little bit different um, is while I, while I want to instill the values of the tradition that I think are so uh, important uh, for for well being, um, and while I want my kids to love the tradition that I love and and want to share that with them, I also find myself feeling okay. I mean, they're still young, so there's no resistance yet, but but I'm also starting to feel okay in a way that I didn't know if I would um, if they come to me one day and say, you know, this this isn't for me, and and to me the the real the real concern for me is, are, are, are they engaging with themselves and the world in, in a healthy way that protects, you know, their mental health and their spiritual well-being? Like, I, I would love that, that that feels really important to me, uh, even more so, I think, than than the actual religious identity. Yeah. I actually like that mirrors very much my approach. Mm. I, I would love for them. I would love for my kids to understand why. I love Jesus and why I follow, you know, and why I, you know, why, why, why I go to church and why my husband go to church. But I, I'm actually fine with them having their own adventure and recognizing that my own, my own path was very winding. And, uh, and also like, you know, when you say maybe this isn't for me, it, it also can be right now. Like, you know, there's lots of ways that we can, we can circle around. But if, if, again, it's kind of like, if you, if you, show the light, then, you know, it's fine. Whatever, you know, as long as they have light in their life, <laughs> yeah. you know, I really do. I, but I really appreciate that. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, um, it's just reality. You know, you can't force kids, you know I mean? Like, yeah, right. you know, right. eventually, exactly. you know, um, but, it, but it's also like, you know, recognizing for them why we do is actually the most important thing. Like, so that they have a good example um, I think it is really great. One, one thing I wanted to just touch base with you that just kind of happened. Um, do you know uh, 
the board member at Interfaith Alliance, uh, Simran Stuhl, Stuhl Penagel. Do you, do you know uh, this, this fellow? I know of him, um, but I don't, I'm not yeah. sure if we've met. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really fine. And one of the things that has happened, you know, just last night, um, the Senate passed the, uh, respect for marriage act, which, um, was really remarkable. And what, what has been kind of this amazing cascade of sick organizations, um, signing on to say, actually, we want to support Respect for Marriage Act, not necessarily because like all of us are, are you know, support same sex, you know, or marriage equality or what, however you want to call it, but because we recognize that people are different in this country and we, you know, and we want to show up for that, you know, and I thought, you know, so there were, there were like a dozen sick organizations that signed on to this letter um, saying, and it, it actually made a difference. And so I just think it was pretty, a, a pretty remarkable moment, I think, for a tradition that I'm sure it's very divided within the, the community, but the younger generation is probably saying, is this really like, we're going to do this? You know, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious what, what your reaction is to that. Yeah, I love, I love to hear that. You know, I, I saw the letter circulating uh, amongst sick organizations and leaders. Um, I wasn't sure, honestly, how people would react. You know, in, in many ways, um, the sick community is agnostic on, on issues like this. We don't have, I think one of the beautiful things about our tradition is we don't have the kind of hierarchy uh, in other religions. And and in, and that's very intentional. Um, your faith is meant to be interpreted for yourself, and we don't need to make uh, arbitrary rules for other people in terms of how they should live their lives. Um, and, and so I love that about our, our faith. But one of the challenges then becomes um, when there are um, clear cultural social issues, um, are we willing to step in and lead with uh, our, our values? And and for me, something like, um, you know, same-sex same marriage, um, is, is very much in line with, with our belief that everyone should have equal rights. I mean, I, I find it to be difficult uh, theologically to argue against it, but at the same time, given the immense um, homophobia and anti-gay bias within South Asian culture, uh, it takes a lot of courage uh, to step forward and take a stand. And so up until now, up until recently, um, I haven't seen many six, um, at least not in, in an organizational sense, uh, taking a position on issues like this. And it seems to be a trend that's been shifting over the past decade or so, um, thanks in, in, in a large part to to queer communities who are opening up these conversations um, and, and pushing the agenda. But I, I, I love to hear the fact that these organizations are actually now, you know, knowing that there is risk involved, uh, willing to step forward and, and do what they need to try in terms of their values. Yeah, I mean, just you know, extraordinary and and understanding like how how deep that is. I wanna I wanna just you know take a moment to recall some you know something that you did um, after the you know the terrible attack on Oak Creek. We just recognized the tenth anniversary of the um, shooting at Oak Creek, the Gudwara. Um, I think uh, there was a white supremacist who went in and and killed. Um, I think it was 10 or maybe more or maybe I don't know. I can't remember exactly the number, but, a, you know, a terrible amount and then traumatized a whole generation um, of, of people in that Gurdwara that day. And one of the things that you really have been 
forthright about, especially as someone who's mistaken for a Muslim, is not to say, oh, I'm not Muslim. You don't have to, you don't hate me. I'm not Muslim, you know, which would be a really easy way to kind of approach that moment. And instead to say, like, actually, that's not the right response at all. And so I, I don't know. I just I'd love for you to kind of you also have have made, you know, for a while you were a professor and teaching Islam which is, uh, I think, quite unusual for a Sikh uh, to teach Islam. So I just think that, you know, what you do is you continue to use your spiritual and religious background to cross bridges that are hard to cross, frankly, and and to take stands that sometimes will, not everybody's going to go there with you, but you take them nonetheless and lead. Yeah, well, I mean, I I don't think um, and any of this is, all that remarkable, at least in, in terms of uh, our tradition, we have many examples of our, our leaders showing us what it looks like uh, to step up for other people in their time of need. And um, it might mean that you are more at risk uh, for harm for yourself, but but that's something that you should be willing to do if, if you truly believe in, in justice for everyone. Uh, and the term we use for that in our tradition is sarbadda which means the upliftment of all humanity. And of course, I care about my community. Of course, I would love for uh, six to have more safety and security in this country and all over the world. Um, but, but, you know, our worldview is, you know, just because I am of one particular religious, I'm not better than anyone who is not sick. Um, I don't deserve more than anybody who is of a different religion or a different race. And so really trying to live into that. And, you know, it was... Uh, one of one of the funny things that would come up when I was teaching, I was teaching Islamic studies in Texas in 2016, I think I started. Um, and, and people would come up to me all the time and be like, well, you look like a Muslim and you're holding a Quran, but you're saying you're something else. And we've never heard of this other thing. But like you're just confusing people. Are you trying to trick us? <laughs> <laughs> and now, now I have a different challenge, which is I, I teach Buddhist history uh, at Union Seminary. Oh, wow. um, and for me, I mean, my, my main role maybe speaks to this um, in a way that might make sense for people. But uh, right now I, I serve as the executive director for the Religion and Society program at the Aspen Institute. And our, our focus is to ensure that everyone, regardless of what they believe or how they pray, or even if they don't believe and if they don't pray, making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity uh, to thrive, to find happiness in, in our society. And while that has been our goal for a long time, the unfortunate reality is we haven't reached it. And so for me, it, it really is uh, my life's mission to help at least get us closer to that goal. I don't I don't think we're close enough yet that it feels achievable, um, you know, within the next year, or within the next decade. But but hopefully we can continue going in the right direction rather than rather than going the other way around. Yeah, well, I know that you. um I, I know that they are lucky to have you steering that ship and, and do know that the Interfaith Alliance is looking forward to partnering with you in, in all ways that make sense and uh, looking forward to that in the future. So Same. Same. Uh, we are celebrating your book, of course, uh, The Light You Give, but also we wanted you to have a chance to give some light on some books in 2022 that you loved. So uh, what are some books that, that you want to make sure our listeners hear about? Yeah, sure. You know, one of my favorite books that I just read um, is by one of my favorite poets. He has a new collection of essays called Inciting Joy uh, by Ross Gay. 
um, I had the privilege of sitting with them at the Texas Book Festival and doing a panel together and just really, really enjoyed um, seeing his his thoughts that in many ways mirrored some of what I what I believe in terms of finding happiness in our daily lives. Um, on, Can on you a, say the name of the author one more time? His name is Ross Gay, and the book uh-huh. is called Inciting Great. Joy. Um, there's a, there's a, a book that is on a different wavelength uh, by uh, someone named Mary Frances O'Connor. It's called The Grieving Brain, uh, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Uh, but it's it's I love it because it's it's a topic that I don't think about too often um, for for many reasons. But you know, as as we all go through difficulties in our life, uh, trying to understand what our our brains are going through through the process, I, I found to be really uh, insightful um, and and compelling. So that was a really nice I book as well. It. That's really say the say the name one more time. Uh, the book is called The Grieving Brain: The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. By oh, by uh, Mary Frances O'Connor. I, I only I only ask you to do this twice because I know that when I'm listening to the radio and someone says something, I, I miss it always the first time. So we we really these are great suggestions. What 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 else are you going to lay on us? Okay, the the last one is a book that I read last year, but if you haven't read it yet, I would uh, highly recommend it. It's uh, Kathy Park Hong. Uh, her book is called Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning. And um, in the context of growing anti-Asian hate um, and in a context where we're trying to learn more about Asian American experiences and perspectives, um, I found this to be a really beautiful, um, personal, vulnerable book uh, that, that revealed quite a bit about an experience that, you know, in, in, a, in a way that I have as a South Asian, uh, but coming from a different perspective and, and really, really instructive for me. So I just love the book. Say it one more time. It's uh, Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. Thank you so much. Those are so helpful and just a beautiful um, range of offerings. So we just really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Simran. Of course. Of course. Okay. Last but not least, uh, you know, to, to, to usher out the, you know, the 2022 why don't you lay on us a couple of your best dad jokes? Oh, so, okay. Um, the word being, being a sick, you know, it's S I K H, but pronounces, I mean, there are tons of good jokes there. Um, okay. So, so, you know, sick is sick is an easy word to play with. Um, I thought that growing up, I had a really unique nickname um, in the nineties. Everyone called me Terminator. And then I realized pretty much every sick in the country was called Terminator. Um, so then I had to come up with a new one. And in grad school, when I was at um, Harvard Divinity, our soccer team, um, they helped me come up with a new one. And my nickname was uh, The Sickness. Um, so that was that was a good one as well. And and wow. and the last thing I want to say about all of this is um, you might think that this is just me trying to figure out all these jokes. But I think there's something innate about this because I'm pun jubby. So that's, I think that's where it comes from. Ooh, my Punjabi ooh, background. Ooh. Oh, no, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I don't, don't quit your job at union. Don't quit your job uh, at the, uh, at the Aspen Institute. Let me just, uh, but, but, but do continue to write, do continue to, um, you know, to, to lay on us all this wisdom. We really, really appreciate it. 
Dr. Simranjit Singh is Executive Director for Religion and Society Program at the Austin Institute and a visiting professor of history and religion at Union Theological Seminary. He is a columnist for the Religion News Service, and his work has appeared in New York Times, Washington Post, and on CNN. Simran, thank you so much for taking time for State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Paul. Great to spend some time with you. We've heard some great recommendations of other books from our guests this week. I have a few of my own. I want to highlight some books on Christian nationalism that I think are very important. This has been a major focus for Interfaith Alliance this year. One of them is Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, an updated edition by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. Another one is The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. This is by Philip Gorsuch and Samuel Perry. And the third is The Seven Deadly Sins of White Christian Nationalism, a Call to Action by the theologian Carter Haywood. I also want to mention Subversive Habits, Black Catholic Nuns in the Long African-American Freedom Struggle by Shannon D. Williams. And one more book by my friend and uh, former colleague at Interfaith America, A Time to Build. This is by Ibu Patel and a beautiful book about uh, how to build things in this country uh, when we talk so much about how things are falling apart. And finally, I want to mention a book by a friend of mine whose name is Grace Shulman. The book is called Again the Dawn, New and Selected Poems from 1976 to 2022. She is an extraordinary woman who has been writing poetry for decades now. I had a chance to hear her read recently, and I'm going to read just the opening to one of her poems called God Speaks. Before the hour I cried, let there be light, I tossed out some 300 earlier versions. Revisions help. What clatter in the firmament, though, when mountains fell, stars fizzled out. This work is my best, at least for now. I called, I named each thing, and it was so. I cannot tell you how, from heaven to seas to people, all sprang up wanting to be. It goes on, and I encourage you to look at Grace Shulman's book, Again the Dawn. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've had for this week's show. We need your help keeping the show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like the ones we heard today are heard by sharing this program with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. 
think it's time we stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going down. 